Good morning. I hope everyone had a good Christmas. There was evidence of a recent Christmas as I taught my entire Sunday school class with a tag hanging out of my shirt. (laughs) Also a sign that my wife is not here with me today, otherwise that never would have happened. But... Well, we're going to continue in the Gospel of John uh, today, and we're gonna, I'm going to be in John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. And so we'll finish uh, 2023 by making our way through most of John 11. And let's just begin by reading this passage of Scripture together. Hear the word of the Lord, John 11, beginning in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. One of the greatest challenges that human beings face in life is how to cope with the certain reality of death. You know, we live in a day in which people avoid talking about death as much as possible. One scholar put it this way, he said, death is the last taboo subject. That certainly is true in America, at least. Ironically, we have no problem talking publicly about a whole range of perverse and shocking subjects, but no one really wants to talk about death. When we are forced to discuss the subject of death, we speak of it in vague circumlocutions. So when a family member dies, we say, he has passed away. When a patient dies in a hospital, we say, she's gone. Why are people so adamant to avoid the subject of death? Well, probably because it is a terrifying prospect that is shrouded in Mystery. For one thing, it represents the end of the only reality a human being has ever experienced. And yet, without a word from God, no one really knows what it will be like and what's going to happen afterward. People tell themselves, of course, that it will be fine, we're going to a better place. But in reality, we don't have any certainty about that. And so for most human beings, death inevitably is shrouded in this impenetrable darkness. It appears that we're helpless and hopeless in the face of death. Dying is akin to letting go from a familiar handhold and falling down into a gaping blackness where we don't know what is underneath. But as Christians, of course, we know it doesn't have to be this way. In the Bible, God does give certain answers, definite hope for human beings in the face of death. And of course, John John 11, 1 through 44, is a premier example of this. So the story that is recorded in this section, it unfolds in three stages. So first, 
Jesus heard his friend Lazarus was sick and delayed going to him. That's verses 1 through 16. Second, Jesus arrived after Lazarus had died and talked with his two sisters. That's verses 17 through 35. And then third, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. That's verses 36 through 44. And what I want to do is just walk through these three stages of the passage together with you. So first, Jesus heard his friend Lazarus was sick and delayed going to him. Verses 1 through 16. Now, remember the previous chapter, chapter 10, it had ended with a very dramatic scene which took place in the temple uh, in Jerusalem during a feast, the Feast of Dedication. And Jesus had made a shocking public statement to the Jews in the course of a difficult conversation with them where he had said, I and the Father are one. And the Jews had responded by picking up stones to stone him, saying, we are going to stone you. And then they say, for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. And so we left the end of the chapter with these words that he escaped from their hands and that he went away across the Jordan. In other words, beyond the eastern border of the country at that time. And there on the other side of the Jordan, He ministered out of reach of his enemies who had so recently tried to kill him until the appointed hour when he would return to Jerusalem one last time to be arrested, condemned, and crucified. And it's into this situation that John chapter 11 verse 1 speaks with these words. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. Now, Mary and Martha were well-known acquaintances and devoted disciples of Jesus. So Luke's account of the gospel, which was written decades before John's, actually recounted a story where Jesus was sitting and teaching in their house. And John now tells us in verse 2 of our text, that Mary was going to be the one who would anoint Jesus with ointment and wipe his feet with her hair in the days leading up to his death. But now John introduces us to the fact that Mary and Martha also had a brother named Lazarus. And apparently Lazarus was also a close friend and a disciple of Jesus because this text tells us that when Lazarus became ill, Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus and they said, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, of course, when you hear that, you see their intention is quite obvious. They expected that when Jesus heard that his beloved friend Lazarus was sick, that he would immediately come to Bethany and help him. No doubt Mary and Martha, they hoped that Jesus would arrive in time to heal their brother, from his sickness, just as he had done with so many other people in Israel. But the question then comes, what is Jesus going to do? And this is where the story takes a very strange turn. Look closely at what it says in verses 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. 
Now, that's a very strange statement, isn't it? It tells us that Jesus received the message from Mary and Martha that his beloved friend Lazarus was sick, but instead of leaving immediately to come to Bethany and help him, Jesus intentionally delayed staying two days longer in the place where he was. And here's the kicker. Why? Why does the text say that Jesus delayed his coming for two days? Well, look again at what it says. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. The reason Jesus delayed and didn't leave for Bethany right away was because he loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. That's what the text says. There's no getting around it. So what is going on here? In what possible way could Jesus' love for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus motivate him to delay, delay coming to them in their time of need? I mean, if he really loved them, wouldn't he leave for Bethany as soon as he heard that Lazarus was sick? Well, the answer to this riddle is found only when we understand the radically different way that Jesus was viewing this whole event. And we get our first glimpse at Jesus' different perspective about what was happening here when we read his initial reaction to the news that Lazarus was sick. Look back at verse 4. He said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus, of course, knew that his friend Lazarus was mortally ill. He knew Lazarus was going to die. But he also saw that God's purpose for the death of Lazarus was that, quote, the Son of God may be glorified through it. How is this going to happen? In verse 4, Jesus says, this illness does not lead to death. Okay, well... We know that Lazarus would indeed die. But Jesus is saying here that his death would not be the end of the story. Rather, Jesus would raise Lazarus from the dead. And this is the way that the death of Lazarus would ultimately become a means by which people would see the glory of Jesus and put their faith in him as the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus knew that that was the most important thing in the world for his friends, indeed for all mankind. Jesus knew he was God's unique son sent into the world to save men from their sin. And therefore, the only hope for human beings was to believe in him that he might give them eternal life. This is why the Gospel of John records Jesus as saying things like this, that on the lips of any other human being would be completely audacious. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Or, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
or I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he shall be saved and go in and out and find pasture. See, Jesus was self-conscious that he was the only hope for human beings. Apart from him, they were slaves to sin, under God's righteous judgment for their sin, only by believing and trusting in him as the son of God and the savior of the world could they be rescued from perishing and receive eternal life. As Jesus put it in John 3, 36, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is why it says, that Jesus was motivated by love for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus when he delayed coming to them for two days. He knew that by delaying his coming by two days, they would be caused to see a more spectacular display of his glory. How? Well, verse 17 tells us that when Jesus finally did arrive in Bethany, Lazarus had already been dead four days. In verse 39, Martha actually remarks that his body had begun to smell because of decomposition. So because of Jesus' two-day delay, there could be no doubt in anyone's mind that the man Lazarus was truly dead when Jesus arrived. And so when Jesus raised him from the dead, it would be an unmistakable, spectacular revelation to everyone who saw it that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Son of God. So it was because Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus that he stayed two days longer in the place where he was so that through the resurrection of Lazarus after four days, they might have an increased knowledge of his glory and an enlarged faith in him. And he knew this was what was most important for them. It was the best thing he could do for them. You know, this same theme surfaces again in verses 7 through 16, when after two days, Jesus finally said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples pointed out that it would be dangerous to do that, to go to Judea, because the last time they were there, the Jews had tried to stone him. But Jesus insists in verse 11, saying, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Now, they don't understand that sleep means death here, and so they protest, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. So Jesus, it says, told them plainly, verse 14, Lazarus has died. But then look at this note that he adds in verse 15. He says, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. In other words, Lazarus's death provided Jesus with an opportunity to manifest his glory to his disciples through this demonstration of his resurrecting power so that their faith in him might be enlarged. And that was even more important to Jesus than prolonging Lazarus's earthly life. It's the same theme all over again. So the point that repeatedly emerges from this first part of the passage is that the most important thing in the world 
for human beings is to see the glory of Jesus Christ and therefore to believe in him as the Son of God. And here Jesus shows he is more committed to this goal in the lives of those he loves than he is to keeping them from grief, from pain, from sorrow, even from physical death. Brothers and sisters, one of the greatest challenges to our faith as Christians is the fact that God so often decides to do things that are different from what we think is best. Things that seem so good, so necessary to us, he withholds. Things that seem so terrible, so detrimental to us, he chooses to allow. But what this passage begins to help us see is that God doesn't see things the way that we do. And therefore, God doesn't do things the way that we would. The reason God's choices are so confounding to us is because his holy character, his infinite wisdom is so far beyond our own. Brothers and sisters, the the challenging reality we have to wrap our minds around, it's like we are like little children who react with dismay at their parents' decisions because their perspective of reality is just so confined and small compared with that of their parents. We've all experienced that as parents. That's how we are before God. We are convinced that we know what is best in a situation and God chooses to do something different. That's because we simply don't realize how little we see and know in comparison to him. One of the things this passage teaches us about the perspective of God is that from his vantage point, the most important thing in life for human beings like us is to see the glory of his son, Jesus Christ, that we might believe in him and trust in him as the savior. So the greatest act of love which God could perform on our behalf as Christians is to continually increase our knowledge of Jesus in all of his glory, to continually enlarge and strengthen our faith in him. And we have to realize that because God does love us, that priority is going to shape what he decides to do in our lives as his people. And you see, because God's priority for us is not worldly comfort, but is rather deepening our faith in his son, Jesus Christ, well, so then, just as he was with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus and his disciples, so God is willing to put us through any number of painful and difficult trials in life in order to accomplish that goal. He's willing to take away from our hands the things that we cherish most in this world. He's willing to allow certain dreams that we have for life to be crushed. He's willing to keep from us things that we desperately long for. He's even willing to permit evil to be committed against us. If, in his perfect wisdom, He knows that through those trials, we will gain a more profound and rich experiential knowledge 
of Jesus Christ in the fullness of his glory. And our personal trust in him will grow. So for instance, brothers and sisters, God is pleased to allow us to grieve at times in order that we might know Jesus as our comforter. He is pleased to allow us to suffer the loss of our possessions at times so that we might know Christ as the faithful provider. He's pleased to allow us to suffer injustice at times so that we might know Christ as our refuge and vindicator. And, like we see in this passage, he's even pleased to allow us to face in various ways the horrors of death in order that we might know Christ as the one who gives resurrection and eternal life. And it's the greatest act of love for God to choose these things for us because there is no more important thing for us in the world than knowing Jesus Christ and learning to trust him more. You know, brothers and sisters, what this teaches us is that we should be striving to make that priority of God our priority as well. We should be striving to be able to say with Paul, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And in every circumstance of our life, let us look for a way, the way in which God is going to reveal to us the glory of Christ in new ways through it and enlarge our faith in him. So, verses 1 through 16, Jesus heard his friend Lazarus was sick and delayed. Now, verses 17 through 35, Jesus arrived after Lazarus had died and talked with his two sisters. Jesus arrived after Lazarus had died and talked with his two sisters, verses 17 through 35. Okay, verse 17, it just sounds this ominous note. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. He's long buried, and Martha indicated, verse 39, his body had already begun to decay. All that's left at this point is a process of public mourning. And what's interesting is we we know that the family of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus was apparently fairly wealthy. We know that because in the very next chapter, Mary would pour out onto Jesus a bottle of extremely costly ointment. But it also seems that not only were they wealthy, but they were a somewhat prominent family in the Jewish community around Jerusalem. Because if you look at verses 18 and 19, it says, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So the point is, when Jesus arrives, there's undoubtedly just quite a scene in this little village of Bethany. So there would have been a large crowd of acquaintances come from around the region to support and comfort the family in their loss, Also, as would have been typical in that day, the family probably would have hired a a host of professional mourners and musicians playing dirges, offering loud wailings and lamentations along with Mary and Martha as they mourn the death of their brother. This is the scene that Jesus shows up to. Then we see verse 20, that while Jesus was still outside the village, Martha, the older, you remember Luke tells us the more assertive sister of the two, 
heard that he was coming and went out to meet him. So apparently, Martha wanted a private meeting with the Lord before he got to the village and news of his arrival went out and people gathered to him. Martha begins, verse 21, with Jesus saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now this is Martha expressing the longings of a grieving heart. No doubt, as she had watched helplessly while her brother's life ebbed away, she had said to herself again and again, if only Jesus were here. She knew Jesus had the power to heal the sick. If he hadn't been so far away when Lazarus fell ill, he could have prevented her brother from dying, but instead he had not been there, and Lazarus had died. Then Martha added this note in verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. Now, I do not think that this is a hint that Martha was hoping that Jesus might raise Lazarus from the dead still. The reason I say that is because later on in verse 39, when Jesus did go to the tomb and he commanded that the stone be taken away, she protested. She said, Lord, by this time there will be an odor because he's been dead four days. So clearly the possibility of an immediate resurrection wasn't on Martha's radar screen. I think what she's saying here is simply that she's, she said, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died, but I still know that you are the son of God, that whatever you ask God, he will do for you. So she's expressing that she still believes in him. And yet, at this very point, Jesus presses in to challenge the depth of Martha's faith. In fact, he's about to show her that her faith had yet to grasp the fullness of the glorious identity of Jesus as the Son of God. He began at verse 23, he said, your brother will rise again. Now, of course, for those of us who have already read John's gospel and we know how this story ends, that statement is, as one scholar put it, wonderfully ambiguous. Your brother will rise again because we know that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. But think if you're Martha, she doesn't know how this story is going to end. And so she just takes that statement as being a comforting reminder by Jesus that according to the teaching of the Old Testament, her brother Lazarus would be raised from the dead at the end of the age. You think of Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, said, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake on this last day, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So Martha responds to Jesus, verse 24, saying, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus now had drawn her in to contemplate this subject of resurrection. And in the, in the wake of her brother's death, she had now confessed her hope in the future resurrection of God's people, including her brother. But she hadn't understood the significance of Jesus's role in that resurrection. So Jesus delivers to her this incredible statement regarding his identity. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? 
Here is the fifth of seven I am statements in John's gospel. And in order to grasp its significance, I want, I want you just to step back for a moment and try to appreciate how wonderful the idea of resurrection is. Here Jesus spoke to this woman whose brother had just died. Perhaps you have sat and watched a loved one die or stood over the open grave of a loved one. She just watched her brother die and he says to her, your brother will rise again. So do you feel the impact of that? Resurrection is the triumph of life over death. It is the death of death. To say that a person will be resurrected is to announce that death isn't going to be their ultimate end. Though they may die, they will live again. So resurrection takes the ultimate sting out of the threat of death because it promises that death will not be permanent, but it will be swallowed up, as it were, by life in the end. So Martha had confessed her belief that God would one day resurrect his people from the dead, including her brother. Jesus responded by making this audacious claim. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, He's claiming that God's purpose and power for the resurrection of his people was centered in him. He was the hope of life beyond the grave. He embodied the death of death because he was the locus of resurrection power. In fact, it's even better than that. Because notice how Jesus unfolded that declaration, I am the resurrection and the life, with two subsequent phrases, each one highlighting a distinct aspect of what he meant by that. So first he said, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now this is the language, I think, of future bodily resurrection. Look again at what he said. Though he die, I think he means, though he suffer physical death in the present, Yet shall he live, yet shall he be raised back to life in the future. Now that was the expectation that Martha had just expressed regarding her brother. Even though he died, she believed that he would live again on the last day. But notice what Jesus is doing here. He's declaring that this future bodily resurrection of God's people would happen through him. Only those who believe in him would partake in that future resurrection of God's people. In fact, if you remember back in John's gospel, in John chapter 5, he had already said that he was actually the one who would personally bring about that future resurrection of God's people. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, he said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. In the context, that's his voice, Jesus' voice, the Son of God, and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You see, Jesus himself is the resurrection. Only those who believe in him as the Son of God will be raised to everlasting life at the end of the age. And he himself will be the one to call them out of the tomb on that day. But then second, he also said, 
Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, I think here is an even more striking claim, if that's possible. Before, Jesus had said that those who believe in him and then die will live again. Now he says that those who live and believe in him will never die. This is a reference to eternal life made available in the present. Eternal life in John's gospel is that new spiritual life of the soul which has come out from under the wrath of God and passed into loving fellowship with God. It is that new birth of the soul by the Spirit, which Jesus talked about with Nicodemus in John 3. And this eternal life, this new life of the soul, once it is received, it can't be extinguished by physical death. And it's in this way that Jesus can say here, everyone who lives right now in the present with this eternal life of the soul shall never die. Jesus had described this same reality a little bit differently back in John chapter 5, verse 24. He said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The one who has eternal life now has passed from death to life. God has raised his soul to new spiritual life and the eventual death of his body or her body will not snuff out that new life. But notice again how Jesus puts himself forward as the agent through which this eternal life would come to man in the present. He declared, I am the life. Because the only way anyone can experience this new spiritual life in their soul in the present is through faith in him. As he says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, do you see what Jesus is saying to Martha? Martha's brother had died. And she's taking comfort in the fact that he would be raised again on the last day. And now Jesus is saying to her, Martha... Don't you see, all your hopes of resurrection from the dead are embodied in the person who is standing right in front of you. I am the resurrection and the life. I will raise the dead on the last day. And I give eternal life to men in the present. Everyone who believes in me has victory over death, both now and for eternity. Do you believe this, he says. In other words, have you come to see this about my identity? Have you come to personally trust in me to be such a one for you? Martha's response recorded in verse 27, it's the response that every man, woman, and child must have to the truth of this passage if they too are to have hope of life in the face of death. She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. In verses 28 through 31, Martha returns to the house after this conversation with Jesus, 
And she tells her sister, Mary, that Jesus has asked to see her. And Mary, unlike her sister, would not be given a private conversation with Jesus because when she got up to go to Jesus, all the mourners that were there with her came to Jesus along with her. And it says that when Jesus saw this retinue of mourners with Mary all weeping over the death of Lazarus, verse 33, it says, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And then he directed them to lead him to the tomb of Lazarus. And there, verse 35 says, Jesus wept. In this scene, we are seeing the second Adam, Jesus, beholding the terrible effects of the first Adam's sin and responding to it in both outrage and grief. So verses 17 through 35, Jesus arrived after Lazarus had died and talked with his two sisters. And now the last part of the text, verses 36 through 44, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, verses 36 through 44. Now everything about this truly ancient account from the first century about what happened here is meant to highlight that on that day, an utterly dead man was resurrected by the power and authority of the man Jesus. The deadness of Lazarus, you see that highlighted from the the mouth of Martha in verse 39, when Jesus gave the order to take away the stone from the tomb, and she said, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. So what was about to happen was no mere resuscitation of a man who only appeared dead, but turns out he wasn't. There could be no doubt the man who ends up being raised was truly dead because his body had already begun to smell from decomposition. The resurrection itself, we see, was the result of the words, the authoritative words and the power of the man, Jesus Christ. He says, Lazarus, come out. This man, Jesus, had the power, had the authority to raise the dead. And then the reality that the one who had truly died, Lazarus, was also truly resurrected. That's certain from verse 44. The man who had died come out, came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This was no mere spiritual apparition. It wasn't the ghost of Lazarus that appeared at the mouth of the cave. No, the text emphasizes the same dead body which had been wrapped in linens and buried in the tomb, now shuffled out of the tomb, a living man again, in response to the mighty call of Christ. Jesus Christ truly raised this man Lazarus from the dead. Now, at this point, we have to stop and we have to realize that the point here is not simply the miracle. The miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead is not ultimately significant by itself. Lazarus, after all, was just raised back to his former condition. He lived more years as a sinner in a fallen world and then he eventually died again. The point of the resurrection of Lazarus, 
The reason it's recorded in this book is that it was a miraculous sign. The seventh of seven miraculous signs recorded in John's gospel that were performed by Jesus, which were significant. They pointed to another glorious aspect of his identity as the Christ, the Son of God. So just like his feeding of the 5,000 was a sign that pointed to his identity as the bread of life, just as his healing a lame man on the Sabbath was a sign that pointed to his identity as the Son of God who worked even on the Sabbath just like his father worked on the Sabbath. Just as Jesus healing a man born blind signified that he is the light of the world. Well now, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead was the climactic sign of his ministry and it pointed to the fact that he is the resurrection and the life, the one who has the power and authority as the son of God to raise sinners from death to life, to say, come forth by his word and people come from eternal death to eternal life. So as we perceive this final sign of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, the words of Jesus to Martha that are recorded in verse 40, they they ring out to our ears. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? If you see this miracle with the eyes of faith, you will see in it the glory of God in Jesus. You will see this sign as bearing witness to the truth that he is the Christ, the Son of God, who was sent by God the Father into the world to give resurrection and eternal life to men, women, and children who will look to him from under the shadow of death and put their trust in him. Death is a terrible thing. To see a human being created in the image of God become a cold, lifeless, dead body, that's a horrible tragedy. And as we see that happen, we should say, this is not the way it was supposed to be. God did not originally create man to die. Rather, death is the awful consequence of human sin and rebellion against God. Remember Romans 5.12? Sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. But it also has to be pointed out that physical death, as awful as it is, is actually only a relatively benign initiation into a far more terrible state of death. The Bible tells us that when a human being dies in the body, apart from Christ, his soul goes immediately to hell, where it awaits the final day of judgment. And Revelation 20, 11 through 15 tells us that when that final day of judgment comes, the souls of the condemned in hell will come forth to stand before God to give an account for their lives. And apart from Christ, they will be sentenced to an eternity in the lake of fire. This final condition, Revelation 20.14 calls the second death. And physical death just pales in comparison to it. From this final, ultimate death, 
we must have rescue. So you see, the reality is that fallen human beings are in a desperate need of being delivered from death. People may try not to think about death. And when they're forced to think about it, they may downplay how bad it really is. Heck, we might even try to turn it into something good, the circle of life and all that. But the stark reality is that death itself is not good. Indeed, it is far more terrible than we even think. On their own, for mankind, there is no escaping it. As my old fellow pastor Robert Briggs used to say, one out of one person will die. But this passage tells us there is a bright ray of hope in the face of the horrors of death. And it is Jesus Christ. He is the resurrection and the life. He has the power and authority as the Son of God to raise us to life after our body dies. And more than that, he can deliver us from the prospect of the second death, of eternal death in the lake of fire and give us eternal life in fellowship with God, even now. That's the good news announced to us here in John 11, 1 through 44. And yet, that leads us to a final question. How can he do this? If God has said, the wages of sin is death, and if all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God... How can Jesus give us eternal life instead? The answer to that question isn't given here in John 11, because John 11 isn't the end of this story recorded in this book. Rather, it's the empty, the empty tomb of Lazarus was just a prelude to another empty tomb, the empty tomb of Jesus himself. Indeed, the resurrection of Lazarus in John 11 really only makes sense when you get to the resurrection of Jesus in John 20. Because Jesus has the power and authority to raise sinners from the dead and give them eternal life because he has paid for their sins, those who believe in him. When he died, that sinner's death upon the cross. And he has secured their vindication through his resurrection on the third day. You remember how Paul put it in Romans 4.25? Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day after his death, leaving behind an empty tomb, guaranteed the glorious resurrection of his people, those who believe in him. And this is wonderfully expressed in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23, where Paul says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And how does a fallen sinner belong to Christ? How do they receive from him eternal resurrection life from Jesus? We've seen it in our passage. The answer is simple. It's not clean up your life. It's not become more religious. It's believe in him. 
put your faith in him as the son of God, the savior of the world, you will receive from him eternal life. The words of Jesus in this passage, they just come out of the pages of scripture and they direct themselves directly to me, to you. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? If you haven't done so already, I just pray that you will do so this morning. And brothers and sisters, having believed in Jesus Christ, we belong to him. And he has freed us from the clutches of death. You no longer need to fear the prospect of physical death, believer, because it will not mean the entrance of your soul into hell. Remember Jesus' words from John 5, 24. I read them before. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's you. As a Christian, you have nothing to fear from physical death because as Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians 5, when your soul leaves your body upon your death, it will go home to be with the Lord. You belong to him. Do you believe that? And you no longer need to fear the prospect of physical death because it will only be temporary. 1 Corinthians 15, 52-55, it tells you this glorious truth that when the trumpet of God sounds at the end of the age, announcing the return of Jesus to the earth in glory, he will resurrect your body from the dead and it will be incorruptible, imperishable, and glorious, free from sin, never to die again. And in that day, death will be fully and finally vanquished in your life and in the whole universe because it will be swallowed up once and for all in the victory of Christ. Do you believe that? Even now, you already experience the first fruits of this resurrection life through the indwelling Holy Spirit. He has already brought your souls from a state of spiritual death to a state of spiritual life by his regenerating power. Through him, we walk even now in newness of life, Romans 6. And his presence and his work within us now, they serve for you as a foretaste, a guarantee of the full and final redemption of your body in the future. Do you believe that? In all these ways, brothers and sisters, Jesus has given us who belong to him victory over death. Now we see or hear of the empty tomb. It should cause our hearts to leap for joy because it signifies to us the death of death in our lives. Death no longer has the power over us. It's been swallowed up by Christ's victory. Oh, it is true. If the Lord tarries, we will all die in the body like everyone else. But the sting of death has been removed. Because death for us has become a doorway to the presence of Christ in heaven where we will await that final day and he will raise us from the dead in glorified bodies like his own and bring us with him into the new creation. Brothers and sisters, let us minister to the dying with these truths. You know, when someone is dying, 
They don't need vague generalities. They don't need circumlocutions about how about what lies ahead of them. They don't need just empty attempts at consolations. They need Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. He alone offers solid answers to vital questions about death. He alone offers real certainties in the face of death that the dying can cling to and hope. So when a person is dying, it sounds simple. Tell them about Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. Remind them of him. Point them to his cross, to his empty tomb, because the stark truth about reality is there is no hope for a dying man apart from Jesus Christ. He alone, who has left the grave behind, can offer sinners life beyond the grave. Well, in conclusion, 2,000 years ago, in the streets of a little town called Bethany, two miles outside of Jerusalem, the man Jesus Christ spoke these words about himself. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he said these words which ring down through the ages to every person who reads this book. Do you believe this? How you answer that question is the most important decision that you will ever make in life. It's the difference between eternal death and eternal life. Let's pray together. Our Father, what can we say in the face of such good news that these words which were spoken to Martha in a private conversation over 2,000 years ago in a little village in the region of Jerusalem have been written down and handed down to us in the Holy Scriptures that we too might hear them, might know through them who Jesus is, might see something of his glory, that we might believe in him and trust in him. Lord, I pray that every person in this room would do so, that if they haven't to this point, if they have been walking in darkness, if they have been in a state of spiritual death and headed to destruction for all eternity, that you this morning would open their hearts to believe the things recorded in this chapter. And for those of us who are your children, that in your grace and kindness you might by the Holy Spirit enlarge our knowledge of Christ, deepen our faith in him, strengthen us to love him and be more devoted to him as a result of seeing his glory through this text this morning. And we pray it in his name. Amen.